0: I'm Mike Williams and welcome to
1: Coffee
0: Talk. Hello and
2: welcome again to the official podcast of the guitar department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. We've got guitar professor Michael Williams with us this week. Michael Williams is an incredible blues guitar player and longtime faculty member here in the guitar department. He's played with David Fathead Newman, Mighty Sam McLean, Tony Lynn Washington, and many others. He played on James Cotton's album, 35th Anniversary Jam, which received a W.C. Handy Award and was nominated for a Grammy. And he's also the author of several books on blues guitar on Berkeley Press, and has written music for movies and television. Professor Williams goes deep with us in the process and values of transcription and the importance of the blues. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Michael Williams.
3: Hi everyone. I'm Kim Perlak. I'm the chair of the guitar department and welcome to our coffee talk this week. We've got Mike Williams, professor of guitar with us. Hey, Mike, how are you today?
0: Doing Great, glad to be here.
3: Great, we're glad to have you. And as usual, we have assistant chair, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, everybody. And our senior coordinator, Ian Steve. Hey, Ian.
0: Hey, all. Coffee hey. cheers.
3: Coffee cheers, everybody. Mike, what are you drinking this morning? Well,
0: have- I've got coffee, and uh, it has a shot of espresso in it too, which is, A little bit out of the ordinary because I've kind of already had my quota of coffee today, but... uh but since this is a coffee talk, I had to have another one, you know, so. Just, you know, <laughs> if I'm talking too fast, slow me down at some point, you know. But uh, I, And this is a special occasion, so I, I brought my old De- Day of the Dead uh, cup, which ooh, is my, my favorite old cup of mine, you know. And oh, uh, so I have great. to be, it's a little fragile at this point, but, uh, so I don't, uh, I just bring it out for special occasions like this, you know. <laughs> that's
3: great. So Cheryl and Ian, there was a time in the office where we did not have a coffee machine. And the idea was that it would help us take breaks and go for walks. And so often Larry Bayona and I would find Mike or Mike more often would find us. And, um, there was this great coffee place, Mike. And I, I think I remember correctly. It was the wired puppy. Do you remember going down there?
0: That yeah, was pretty cool. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was the, close by too, close by.
3: It was close by and they had this dark roast called the hair of the dog. Hmm. And I, I, that that was like, you know, I remember we would say like, oh man, Mike would always be there. Hey, I got you one, you know, and it would pump us up for a little while.
0: You know, that kind of went way all the way back to my earliest days at Berkeley because Mm -hmm. I used to run out and grab coffee for Bill Levitt, you know, taking a lesson for him if you're going because he would always see me late in the day Mm -hmm. and it would be four o'clock, five o'clock or something, and hey, um, you want me to bring a coffee? And he'd always bring Mm -hmm. a coffee, and uh, but. uh, Coffee, coffee, the Wired Puppy was cool because they also sold um, accessories for, you know, I had a hat, Wired Puppy hat, and I gave those as gifts. And I even bought the dog collars for our dogs and things like that. <laughs> we bought for accessories. We were fully accessorized from Wired Puppy. You know? <laughs>
1: that
3: is so great. I used to do that too. I, all through all my jobs, I was always the coffee delivery system. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's a good, it's good karma you know? And it's um, it's not a bad relationship builder, really. <laughs> when you bring someone a coffee on a long day, it's a good one.
0: It's like a tradition in the guitar department, really. It, I mean, yeah. it, it was by the time I got there. So it's just like carrying on the tradition a little bit, you know?
3: <laughs> That's great. So Mike, speaking of that, one of the first questions we ask everybody is to recall first days at Berkeley. And for you, you had a number of them as a student I think at least in one capacity as an undergrad and then as a faculty member. Um, So, is there anything in particular that stands out to you about any of your first days?
0: I remember the first kind of the first day or two of Berkeley uh, pretty clearly still because I, um, I had worked hard to get there and kind of practiced for a couple years while working a full time job in Northern California to get there. So, I was just amped up. And I was an older student when I went there. So I get there uh, and did my placement audition originally. And then um, I got this schedule and this was all within the first day or so. And it said uh, uh, this particular ensemble I was put in and uh, I had a question about it. So, you know, guitar department, fifth floor, I go trudging on up and uh, um, I got walking up the stairs at the top of the stairs with Larry Bale standing right there in in the hallway and asking and he says he could say that i was lost you know he said may i help you and i said yeah i have a question about this ensemble and uh i i think i mentioned this at his retirement when he when he left i think but he gave great advice then you know and that very first day uh that was kind of my first day in the guitar department and if it wasn't that day as well It was within a day or so of that I auditioned for William Levitt's ensemble. He had this, um, it was a kind of a high-level reading ensemble in Berkeley and a respected guitar department ensemble. And here comes Mike, a brand new student at Berkeley, walking up there to uh, to Bill Levitt's office. And so I, I had my audition time. I go in and there's a rhythm section sitting there. I can't remember who was on drums, but Jim Kelly was playing rhythm guitar and i think it was either guitar or bass and charles chapman was playing the other one i think charlie was playing bass and jim was on guitar or jim was on bass and charlie was on guitar and william bill Levitt, put uh being the gentleman that he was had such great um you know just such great presence and uh, such a great vibe such a welcoming vibe and everything and (laughs) i'll I'll never forget going in there i played a blues i think i played a straight no chase or something like that and I'm pulling out all my, you know, all my jazz looks and everything like that. And and right after that thing, he said, "Man, you, I love that. You play some dirty blues, you know." <laughs> i'll never forget that expression but then but then he said well let's try some reading right and he and he gets a guitar chart out he puts it in front of me of course and it's this uh it's this uh what's the name of a holiday for strings it's it's in two and it's and after about one and a half bars, I'm totally lost. I mean, because he's Bill's just smiling. He's just going one, two. you know. And I'm not used to reading in in two, uh, for one thing. And uh, so I would always rely on my ears, but I was just plain lost after about two bars of this thing, and just just trying to smile my way out of it, you know. And there's Bill putting on a nice vibe and a big grin and everything, but he just nailed me to the wall like within the first minute of being there and it was i was truly humbled and uh i didn't make the ensemble that semester uh but i did end up in it the very next semester and from then on you know i played in it uh, well for a while but uh it was it was a great experience so those are my opening days in the guitar department meeting larry bayonne and uh, jim kelly oh by the way the, i had that audition with jim yeah playing in that rhythm section and then i go to a concert that night because my wife and i were way into the meters and the new orleans and all kinds of you know blues and jazz kind of stuff the meters were playing in harvard square at, at a place oh. there and i go to this concert i walk into the and so was paul rochelle paul rochelle opened up for the <laughs> that night the paul rochelle band was opening mm-hmm. for the, and so i'm new to new england uh i get there to the meters and i look over standing beside me is jim kelly and his wife meg and we met them like my first or second day at berkeley as a student and we became friends at that point and so i'll never forget my first days but i was welcomed into the community i feel very fortunate since then yeah
3: mike what was it like on your first day as a teacher did you have time away after you graduated mm. like what was it like to come back in and- in the role of being faculty member.
0: You know, I, I and interestingly enough for me, I, I was an older student when I, I came to the school and because I had some life experience and some playing and, and traveling and almost a year in Europe, t- t- touring and playing around. And, and uh, um, I came back uh, and when I got out of Berkeley, before I got out of Ber- Berkeley, Bill Levitt asked me he said what do you think about would you be like to work here part time and uh i just i was stunned i was getting ready to go move back out to california and, and uh, get a job try to get a job in a teaching in the music store or whatever, just continue the the career such as it was. And uh, uh, so actually, I, I got on, on the faculty after I got out of, uh, as a student. So there wasn't a long break there. But I had been working hard at, at you know, gathering my materials and transcripts. I was just um, like so many people are just full on into it and I just kind of took this and moved it to that and uh there wasn't much of a break between being the the student an uh, older student mind you and uh with the with the teaching thing so um but I do remember I, I did have some great players uh early on in my my career I remember that we used to do these rhythm guitar things we had these uh, what do they call it sure you remember this the right hand rhythm things and all that right and so I think I had a student really high level student from might have been brazil or something like that and i'm trying to teach him the bossa nova uh with the pick thing you know and the groove and i the, the 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 student just wasn't buying it <laughs> you know? I feel like I'm in a hot, I'm between a rock and a hard place here, you know, and uh, I'm trying to point out the positive uh, uh, benefits of, of getting more command, you know, of course with a pick, because all those pick style studies and everything like that, it does give you more command and chops with a pick and everything, but there's, <laughs> the school is a uh, has grown. It has merged. And, and, and it's a good thing. The finger style, the monstrous finger style players that we have and everything like that. And that groove, I'm going to, I'm going to be partial to that with the fingers. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you,
3: you know, that story, it brings up something that people talk about all the time and interested in your perspective. So there's always this sort of idea that you, know, you have your school experience And then you have your professional experience and what things carry over and what things don't as much. And I think it's really interesting that you had this touring career and this professional career, and then you came to Berkeley as a student, I did. which kind of sometimes is the opposite of what our younger students experience. And then you became a faculty member. So you almost saw this thread in a different way than some of our faculty colleagues who saw it in the other order. I'm right. wondering what is your perspective about that. Like, what do you feel like you gained by coming with professional experience as a performer when you were a student, and then how have you balanced like the benefits of both of those experiences, like in college and then on the road, so to speak, in your teaching?
0: Right. Okay. Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you know, I just, I didn't have a great teacher. Um. um in the years that I got out of high school, um, but there were great jazz players that came up to Northern California where I lived. And so I got the opportunity to play on a lot of gigs just with really great players that were escaping LA and and in San Francisco to be up in, where I lived in Humboldt County. And they just, we just had this monstrous collection of jazz musicians that that just gravitated there. And these guys and people would want to come out and play for, Twenty-five bucks, you know, if you had a Monday night in a club, just because they wanted to play tunes, and so they would put up with us younger players. Would just we would get the gig, and and they would come play, and just more or less put up with this. But I'll, I'll never forget learning the lessons on on the gigs with these this sax player that we or few that we used to have up there could they could you could sit in and just absolutely go to toe-to-toe with any of the heaviest players that could come to uh, and you know because Nor- northern california was that west coast um stretch of uh, between la and, and san francisco and then portland and seattle so there was a west coast scene out there and so we get all the west coast players coming through and these guys could hang with any of them you know a few of them um so it was a great um um, benefit to me to be able to get on the gig and just learn to play. And I was transcribing and learning. I learned to write music by just, I want to play this song. So I've got, therefore, and these horn players can read, therefore I need to learn, learn to write it out. And I knew to learn to transpose and all that by hand and, um, and all that. So there was that element of that playing, which was, uh, um, a great, great for me, you know, but uh, coming to Berkeley by the time, I was probably twenty-eight when I was there, so I really was an older. I really felt like an older student, and I was, but I also knew that Berkeley was made that way. It started out as a trade school in the old, the older days. You'd have musicians coming off the road, and that was my image of Berkeley. And they, and they, they allowed me to come, and they embraced me. Uh, You know, as a student, when I got there, they said, welcome. um, But yeah, it's much different than being a 17 year old and showing right out of high school, because I actually remember taking my English class and having some students in the English class. Peter Gardner was the teacher who's become a great friend over the years, and he he lives in Arlington, and I see him at the Y, well, when we go to the Y, put it that way, (laughs) but I know he's a great friend for all these years, and he was, I think it was his first semester teaching there in liberal arts, and there was some youngsters in that English class that were Downright misbehaving and everything like that. And I was embarrassed as a as a 28 year old at that time that you know about the what's going on, and I I gave it my best effort ever. All of my classes at Berkeley, but it is a different. I would have not walked in with good with very good ratings if I was 17 when I got there. So I had the benefit of coming in to getting the classes with Herb Pomeroy and and you know um, all the very best of the teachers. I mean, I don't. I, oh, I don't mean to say the very best but the, the people that put berkeley on the map you know um and i always tried to g- get classes from john laporta i always yeah. wanted to but my ratings were too high at the time i would sign up for the ensemble i want i want john laporta's ensemble they go this is a level two uh, ensemble you can't take it you know I'm, i just want to study from john laporta you know mm-hmm. and i never i i went to his workshops and classes but i never Got to take an improv class or anything, but uh, it it is different, um, you know. And for me, it was just it was only because I was older; I had more life experience. Mm And had I been seventeen, I would have been right in the very, in the you know, right in the beginning, more beginning level. I really would have. So, I wonder if I answered your question.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you really did, and and I wonder um, how that perspective, sort of knowing what you experienced before school. How does that affect your curriculum when you teach students? Do you feel like it gave you a perspective of like what they might need in terms of
1: application of materials or something
0: like that? I think it does. I mean, I think it all helps everything because we're always uh, continually learning. I mean, I mm-hmm. I uh, I make it clear to my students, I'm a, uh, my students that I'm still a student myself, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just might be further yeah. along um, um, than them. But when somebody gets to the school that um, Maybe some of the more inexperienced students that haven't learned, um, you know, some of the th- uh, some of the elements that that they need to have. We we focus on that, and I I always ask them what they what, what, what uh, first thing off is what are your interests, where where your goals, what do you want to do, where are you coming from, and where do you see yourself going? And because we need to think about that as teachers and try to uh, but adjust our curriculum, but um, you know, some knowledge like knowledge of the fretboard and and. Uh, and we could get into the teaching the the, the the challenges of teaching remotely right now as well and mm-hmm. i am you know because there's, there's certain things that really come through that are really important it's one thing when i'm in a room with a a, a, a student i think that more advanced students are in in some ways easier to teach because we we can i can just Tell that person, say, well, we did this today. We did this today. Go check this out. and Let's play this Mm -hmm. next week. Uh, Transcribe this out of this solo. Look this up. Let me know if you think that you like this, if you don't check this one out. And if you don't like that, bring something that you do, you know, and and let's let's do them all anyway. But the advanced ones, I think it's the sometimes the ones that don't have as much experience are um, the, there's a, that's a special set of challenges you know and so for me it's um, you know if should I get into that right now you no know,
3: we can in a minute. Um, what I want to just note yeah. for people mm-hmm. listening though is it really sounds like coming from a different part of your career to be getting a student really primed you to be a lifelong learner and to see it that way. It's not like, Oh, I go to college and now I'm done with learning. And now I'm going to apply for the rest of my life. You really came in with that mindset. And I think to be a 28 year old and to say, there's more for me to learn and make the choice to go to college is that, and maybe that's something that those of us who um, went the other way, like went to college to kind of build a foundation. It's good for us to hear your experience that, Hey, listen, this is the step one. Right? Yeah. And you're going to keep yeah, learning. You know,
0: exactly right. I mean, by the time I got on the faculty, I was looking around at some of the other teachers that are there and saying, Oh, look what these people are doing. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, there's my good friend, Jim Kelly, for instance, that we, we all know and respect. And I was pretty fairly close with him at that point. And I saw the wealth of tunes that he was writing, the transcriptions, and not just him. You look around the guitar department, you find that with with so many of the players, but yeah, it's easy to be motiva- motivated when you're in this uh, environment, you know? And yeah. you also have to be, get some sense about who you are, where do I fit in there? Because, you know, I can't be this person, I gotta be who I am and embrace, try to embrace my, you know, where my heart is. And, and at some point, I. I just came to the honest uh, um, realization that I just you know I just love the blues so much that everything I do has blues in it, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna apologize for that. At some point, it was like, well, I'm just a blues, you know. But I mean, whether it's jazz blues or whether it's straight blues or yeah, whether it's uh, you know people funking out on on uh, jam band kind of stuff, those elements of the blues are always in my playing. I had Berkeley teachers, the best of them you know, telling me, man, I like your playing, you're a bluesy player. And I never even thought about it. It wasn't even an element. It just came out, you know? So at some point I just realized, hey, there's there's room here to be a blues player and, and to mm-hmm. feel good about it. So that's, try to find my spot because I could always walk to the hallway down, down the hall and hear the people that are doing, you know, you know, something else, 15 hours a day. And uh, they're great at that as well, you know, mm-hmm. so.
3: You, you know, Cheryl, there's so many ways to go. I'm sure you're thinking as I'm thinking, um, so many avenues to go next. Like there's finding yourself, there's being who you are, there's being a lifelong learner, there's um, meeting your friends and having them being your lifelong teachers and collaborators. And um, there's so many things I know that you and Ian are thinking about as Mike is talking. Um,
1: where would you like to go next, Cheryl? Well, I have, yeah, I have a, a very specific question for Mike, or a topic for Mike. I remember running into you a while back, and you had—you looked like you'd been up all night, worried, fretting, because you were doing a book of transcriptions, a blues transcription. And I think it was some early blues, like Robert Johnson type of thing. And your your stress was in notating that because it's going to be published. Right? So some of that stuff defies notation, right? Because of the feel and stuff like that. I'll never forget that, you know, you know, because when when it's on the line like this is gonna be published, you know, you've got to cross your T's and dot your I's and stuff. So I'm just curious because I know you have dug so deeply into so many of these players through transcription. I'm just curious of your thoughts about you know in working with your students and for yourself the importance of transcription transcribing the process of it and and what do you feel are the and, and uh, cuz different people have different opinions some people are like you should transcribe a whole solo and like you know or some people go oh just grab licks that you like i kind of agree with both of those but, but i'm really curious about how you Approach that with your students in terms of their process, because I know it's been a big part of yours, and also that process of if you're going to publish a transcription, as opposed to you're just scribbling something out for yourself.
0: Okay, um, thanks, Cheryl. That, um, I yeah, transcription is a big part of my. Um, it's been a big part of my curriculum. It's been a big part of my learning experience in from day one of. Trying to learn George Benson licks, you know, in, in back in my band in Northern California, you know, and and uh, uh, and and every and whoever else the saxophone players we were listening to and and uh, and everything as well. Um, but um, um, it, blues can be difficult, especially the slow tempos and all that. But you know, you start as you learn about it more and more, you start to see what's the acceptable uh how far do i have to go here to to get it to, you know are we going to go beyond a 16-note triplet or are we going to round it here and we're going to just write on the transcription push the beat drag a little bit and and all that so you got to go with kind of what looks and makes the most sense but it just has been such a big learning experience for me and some of the best teachers i ever had and and some of the most serious teachers where i learned quickly and uh, well, a guy like Charlie Bonacas, for instance, every week, in addition to working crazy things up and down the strings to learn the fretboard, which was phenomenal to learn what you learn from a person like that. Even a non-guitar player uh, didn't really care about the guitar, just wanted to hear the things that you you would play. There would always be some transcription that you had to do that week in addition. And, you know, in a way, some of those transcriptions have been things I've learned as much from as anything. But I really think that transcription gives the students, um, as as well as myself, this is the real use of these techniques that we study. So yes, we go and we study scales, we study arpeggios, we study uh, tools. Those are tools. It's like a shovel and a pick and a a rake. But the thing is, what are you going to make with those tools, and that's where transcription uh takes it it's no longer generic when you find a phrase that really lights your you know helps the light bulb go off and really motivates you this is the practice this is so what so and so did here Played this triad against this chord and i learned that in harmony but here it is in real use, and so I just think it means so much more to me. And I think it may, makes a connection with the students too, because it takes away the genericness of the learning. It's now it's now it's a specific thing, especially if you get under one of those solos. He just has, uh, you know, piece after piece after piece of that. All these things we that they, they, they might have learned in the in the harmony class and all that. Uh, sometimes. You know, you look around and you might see students with little glazed-over eyes, and they're just ready to nod off, almost. You know, but if you hear something in a recording and you see the impact, wow! There's that scale, or there's that, there's that device, and look how creatively that player uses that technique in all these different contexts and everything. So, I think that um, transcription is just is huge. It's been huge for me. It's been also a great source of ideas because I might take an idea from somebody and then change it around five different ways. Once I know five, I want to change it 10 ways once I know. And I try to get my students to, to do that. It's, it's never about learning. It's, scale is term, short-term, short-term goal. You need to play these scales bottom line is what are you going to do with them and how are they going to benefit? And why are we having you learn these? You need to, and then you you need to get get them to experiment, get out there and play with it and listen for it, hear it in recordings and things like that. So I spent a lot of time transcribing in blues. I mean, I spent years on in and out of a van traveling around the United States with blues bands and things like that. Sometimes you got five or six or seven or eight hours in a van. And so we can only talk so long and listen to music and everything. And pretty soon, everybody gets their Walkmans out or their headsets out. And I just get the laptop out and I know... I have good relative pitch, but I don't have perfect pitch. So I'd know what keys some song was in. And I'd just proceed to transcribe as much of that solo as I could, you know, while in the laptop, in the in the van, you know. And the, otherwise, it's just kind of wasted time, you know. So uh, I think some of the best ear training I ever have done has been uh, just waiting to get to the next place to play and just just trying to hear. And then it can be very humbling, too, because, I mean, if you're doing something that moves around tonal center-wise, <laughs> trying to write out... Uh, a West solo uh, on this track or that, and I think I thought I had those phrases right, but <laughs> but or 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 whatever, maybe even more contemporary player. But if it was a blues track, I might get to the the place and realize I got most of this right, kind of dead on, you know. So the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I think as students start to see that they get better at it and they get faster at it, they get you you see them get more encouraged to do it. But I try to tell my students to transcribe. It's not a one week assignment, this is something you need to do for the next five years and and make it a little part of your day. Six days a week, if you can five days, six days a week don't do it for an hour and a half uh, nonstop one day a week do it for 20 minutes or 15 minutes if that's all you can find but do it six days a week and. Then look at how far you came in three months, and if that, that should motivate you to keep going with it, you know. So I really try to tell people, or to really encourage them, to transcribe as a long term part of their practice. Yeah. Anyway,
1: that that's fantastic. I have. Uh, are you? Uh, do you insist on them being written out or from memory?
0: Okay, that's a good question too. <laughs> i uh, well i have my opinion about that and it may not be the same as everybody but i basically tell them (laughs) well let's think about the definition of transcribing trans the definition i believe means to write out so to to notate okay so uh, sometimes i'll ask people to transcribe something and i'll i'll show them all those you know here's 32 things that I just did, or I didn't just do it, but I've done it. And then they'll come in the next day and I say, did you do that? And he said, they might say, sure. I'm, uh, uh, well, show it to me. Oh, I didn't write it out. <laughs> Transcribing means writing out. So I also like to explain to my students that learning by ear is great. It's fantastic. It's really a great thing to do. It enhances our ear and it, you know, we can... Take those techniques, and we can learn, and we can evolve. But if you write something out, it makes um, it makes us a lot more community, gives us more communication skills with musicians that know how to read. Like if you're working with drummers and rhythm sections that, and keyboard players that are, you know, better reader than than I am or we are, whatever they can just, I mean, they can learn your show, your 40-minute concert in the, in, in the green room in 10 minutes before you play. And how many times have we done that? A lot of times, if you're playing with musicians that can read. And why am I able to write that out? Is because I've transcribed those rhythms that I already learned from the drummer. Uh, how do I define a, a drum groove I want and speak in drummer terms? So uh, um, learning to write... Um, gives us the rhythm rhythmic accuracy more rhythmic accuracy it, it makes us more um, articulate in what we you know want to communicate with musicians and need to communicate so that's that's a step beyond um, do playing by ear and it also gives us the ability to set us up now now i've got something written out now let's analyze it let's see what's on that page and it's there we've documented it as best we can I mean, sometimes i think of my transcriptions as living breathing things because i might find a note or more that i that i had wrong uh, sometimes the the knowledge of theory can almost trick the ear sometimes like you're hearing an f minor chord but that solos is playing an A A natural against it, and it's in a high range. It might be a trumpet player, and your ear says, "Oh, that must be an A flat," you know. And so uh then I'll, I'll learn, you know, maybe two years later, three years later. Uh, oh, that's an A natural. So you know, just the knowledge of theory, but but um analyzing once you have written it out, that's just the beginning. Now you got to analyze it. Now you got to figure out how to. Once you can play it, now the real work begins. What are you going to do with what you've? And we are now. So, I try to tell people that if you do, if you analyze something, it takes you five hours, or if you transcribe something, five ten hours to write it out, which it could. For me, I mean, to write it out neatly, to convert it to Finale, make it look nice, uh, make it look decent, format it decently. Okay, now spend five times that much time. Just grabbing a the number there, but way more time figuring out what to do with those phrases to make them mar- all That's where the real hard work begins. You know, I think anyway, the real hard work. Figuring out what to do with that. So,
1: yeah, I I think everything you're saying is just golden stuff, to, you know, mm-hmm. and and I think there's that thing of, well, you know, we were talking about this. Talk about this when we had the interview with Alan Chase or what you know there's that also that thing particularly when you talk about blues and the expression and the and the articulation you know there's that there's also that level of you're learning how to hear the notes but then once you can hear the notes you start to listen deeper into the tone the the attack the articulation the dynamic like that's just that gets deeper the more that you really make this. I love this that you're talking about making this a lifelong practice of something because you know it's just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper through the years in terms of it's like true listening. You know, there's someone like, "Whoa, I heard that," but no, if you listen deeper, there's so much more behind each note.
0: Mm. You know. That's a good point. Yes, yeah, that's, that's really. I mean, you were asking. Um, a little bit ago about you know my my uh, beginnings of of uh, learning and playing and everything and having the opportunity to play with some of these sax players. One of these sax players that used to play um, in Northern California with a fellow by the name of Barry Block, and he um, he passed away a few years ago in in Europe. Um, kind of an unknown guy, but he was a real genius player, and uh, he, he, you know had a, a kind of eccentric personality to to be real honest about things. But at one point when he took me under his wing every now and then and would let me in on his world. At some point he said, Mike, I know you're working hard on music. He said, but, and I I was at his house because I think I was buying a um, reel-to-reel recorder from him at one point. And, and, uh, And I look and his whole house is full of jazz and bebop, vintage, you know, vinyl and everything like that. And he could really, really play that stuff. But he says, I'm gonna tell you one thing. Don't just put music on for background. Whenever you put music on, you as a musician need to listen, and you need to listen for the lines that are moving uh, in 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 the accompaniment, and as the soloist is playing, there's line there's line that's moving, and and listen and hear work to hear the chord changes. Don't just don't just passively listen actively listen pay attention and he made a real uh, a real impression on me he made an impression on a lot of people uh, but I was one of the ones that was fortunate enough to be standing close by and uh, and getting some of these uh, listening when he would have he didn't offer a lot of uh, uh, nuggets verbally it was more about just, this is how it's done, plan-wise, right? But he, when he told me that, I, I I I listened, and I've taken that, I've passed that along to a lot of students, and I give him credit. It wasn't me that made that. I learned that from him. So, anyway, that's that's been a gift that I got from him, is to really listen, and I internalize that with the with the uh, with the. Uh, Transcription thing because I mean you know it's it is one thing to put a CD on and then just go vacuum the house or something like that and, you know background that that's okay too we can do that as well but if you're going to listen to music um and try to learn from it you really have to try to what's in this what what can I hear what are these chord changes I mean how many times have we learned songs on the way to a, a gig if I've got a two-hour drive I that's my best listening almost is in the mm-hmm. car if I have a gig <laughs> you know <laughs> which is The COVID thing kind of shut that down a little bit, but uh, uh, yeah, listening in the car and really paying attention. So anyway.
3: I really love that. Um, And as you were talking about, I was thinking, you know, we have so many styles in the guitar department at Berkeley. We, We really represent all of them that I can imagine. And certain styles carry with them like certain biases. And one of the things for blues is like, Oh, it's all feel it's all ear. It's. And so I think, while there is a lot of expression in there and there is a lot of feel that's inherent to that style, it's really good, I think, to hear you talk about all of the tools that you need and all of the depth that you need. And because I think students have to always make that leap between thinking like, okay, this is someone's feel and you know, how do I find my own? And then kind of seeing that, oh, wait a minute, this is how they've chosen to use all of these tools that I can use. And yesterday it just happened that there's a new student that's gonna be coming your way soon, um, I'm sure. He's really great. And he had that moment, like I watched him have that moment. He stayed after class and he said, wait a minute, I have a question for you. And he played this BB King link. And he said, I just thought of this as something cool that I heard that I liked, but now I realize it's made of these intervals and it's made of the scale and I could turn it around like this and make my own. And he played this like incredibly cool line. And he was so excited because he hadn't seen that thing that he just reacted to emotionally as made up of the same stuff that then he could use and create his own line. And uh, I think that's what you're saying, really. You're sort of revealing these tools to the students that are available to them if they work on them.
0: You know, we try, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> that's
3: great. Um, Ian, what are you thinking about in all of this? Where do you wanna start?
2: Um yeah, I mean, okay. So you mentioned all the different styles that are there at Berkeley. And you also mentioned how, you know, different it was when you were a student. And I'm curious, uh, we've asked this of um somebody else like John Baboyan, but I'm I'm interested to hear your take. And that's, you know, what was it like to experience sort of the growth of Berkeley and the guitar department stylistically?
0: Um yeah, just, you know, I think it was just, a, um, I just feel lucky to have been there along the way. I, I mean, it was there was growth before I ever got there, but I mean, it was underway already. But yeah, it, it used to be a, a smaller um, thing. It was more specialized in what it did. And then, uh, you know, then the fusion thing came along. And you see these pictures like Randy Roos and that uh, Cheryl put up on the... Uh, you know, the board and some of the early uh, jazz rock bands that were coming at Berkeley, and there were synthesizers and there's the David Mash stuff and all that stuff that came along. And so by the time I got there, it was already, there was already that element of it. But then, you know, just about the time I showed up, there was John, John Finn was coming around and uh, different players that were bringing their own things in. And I I, I was always welcome to to do diverse styles. Nobody ever told me you have to do this. And uh, they always embrace us to bring um, our, try to bring the best of our whatever skill set we had to bring that to the table and to offer. I, I just think there's been this natural Growth that has happened, and then uh, you know, under the under direction of Rick and Larry and Rick, when they were um, uh, in, at the helm, they welcomed other players and started hiring these amazing uh, wealth of players that have come on uh, after the initial group that was mainly hired by Bill Levin and, and company and all that. And it's just been a natural kind of thing where um, these different styles that maybe weren't represented enough have become representative and uh uh, you know represented at the school and i just think it's really um it's really a great thing i mean i know when i got to school in in uh, um in the this was in the 80s. I would go down to the 1369, they used to have a jam session, uh, uh, there in Inman Square on Sundays. Was a blues jam that place was packed every day, and we'd get in there, and it would just be a squalid, sweaty mass of people dancing. And and that's just the musicians waiting to play, you know. I mean, uh, but uh, uh, um, that was a great experience. There was a real sense of community there, and I learned, uh, uh I learned, um, a lot about the the scene the blues and the r&b scene for because a lot of people would be down there and uh, it was kind of a raw thing and i also found there was this attitude about there was this attitude about berkeley down there about berkeley guitar players just not maybe not knowing and not respecting what was involved in in like playing blues the way it was and i'm not saying it's justified or not I, I just know it was a very much a perception of people oh berkeley that's you know it's all about playing too many chords and too many notes and disrespect and so i almost felt like for many years i had to kind of like get out there and fight to to show that like you know yeah well we can play the blues too and and uh and 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 be Feel great about it, you know, and 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 do it. To try to do it the right way, whatever that whatever that is. We all have a different sense about, you know. Thankfully, we have a different ear ear. We don't hear it the same way, and I'm, I really am thankful for that. Um, but uh, yeah, and so the, the the perception that well they they think if they they know three or four chords, they know everything there is about a blues and they just come in and play loud and turn up too loud and and everything like that. So, um, I've, I've just, I've made it my mission for the last, I don't know how many years to try to, uh, just learn the music and be respectful uh, of that. And, uh, you know, not put limitations on it, but, but just to try to, uh, to show, yeah, we, we, they do everything at Berkeley, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I used to say, "Well, we've got great metal players. We've got shredders. We've now it's just everything. You just you name it. We've got great world class finger style players. We've got world class classical players. So we've got it's it kind of we've got a kind of got it all. I guess you could say. You know, <laughs> I feel lucky to be a part of it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think we all do. I mean, I think that's something that comes out in every interview. It's such a nice part of our week too to just sort of.
1: Have a moment of gratitude is really nice, mm-hmm. but we—I would say—we feel lucky to have you. Yeah,
3: <laughs> absolutely. Because you know, um, even though when when you say you were welcome to come and bring what you brought, in essence, what you did, Mike, was you you built the blues curriculum that we have. I mean, with others, but you really have had a, a massive impact on that for 30 years. And um, I'm wondering, as you were building that curriculum maybe you weren't even aware that that's what you're doing. You know, what are the things that you feel like are the main points? Like what are the what are the aspects of that curriculum that you built that you feel like, you know, I think this should be something that if you want to learn the blues, this should stay.
0: Um well, I think the, you know, the, the learning about some of the key players that came along i'm more of, of a um i am again i'm always a student of, of everything but i'm but i'm more a bit more knowledgeable and more experienced with the post-war blues than i am with the pre-war and uh so the i love the old country blues stuff and all that but i'm i'm kind i am a student of that or, or a student of that so uh and i'm not i'm working on that still um, um it could be a little more consistent with my work on that, but I'm working. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the post understanding about the post-war players and, you know, beginning with the likes of uh, T-Bone Walker and Lonnie Johnson was great jazz and blues player as well. One of those that did was the best at at kind of both of those and then all the players that descended that uh, of that and i i'll start mentioning that to players and i'll start showing them and uh transcriptions and listening to tracks and we've got such a wealth of great recordings on youtube and everything um and i'll just see the light bulb go off sometimes and yeah this is where i want to go and uh but i think um Just understanding also uh, everything that's involved in, in playing, whatever style you do, it's not like you just learn a couple techniques and you go out and do it. Blues players need to learn how to take turnarounds. They need to learn the nuances. Like Cheryl, you were talking about all the dynamics, all the all the, the difference in picking style the volume stuff the the things where you're moving and um, not to underestimate all of that in that style because there's a lot more to that than people if they don't understand the blues they they will underestimate what's kind of involved in it i mean as long as i've been playing it you know i love like the jazz blues thing too and i could i could just stay on that all day long i love that but but If I'm out playing, when I was out on the road with like James Cotton and some of these really, you know, blues band, and um, I never would get bored playing that because I'm just trying to get it right, you know, from my perspective. I always know there's something, okay, that was pretty good, but I, you know, I always have this mind that says, well, I... I can always do better if I keep working at it. So it's that student. I still have that student in me, you know, but um, I, I think we need to be respectful and really look for the nuances and the things that make every song different because there is this... Uh, there's this generalization that every blues tune is the same and now that's what people say they don't know the blues because you've got to understand the nuances of the playing style of the of the again the turnaround the, the phrases that the guitar may or player may play that make that or or the one chord progression or two that you know if you're playing Freddie or you, you've got to know that the chords aren't the same as a 5-4 turnaround or something like that every, every little progression is different and that's uh, what makes that song unique. So we need to look for that. And, and, uh, that's what the students, I, t- I try to get that across. So I'm, I'm, you know, I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to play, um, all these years there I mean you know I'll go back to my buddy Jim Kelly again he had mm-hmm. you know all that blue stuff too he, it's just he, he does so many other things so well and, and uh, you just can't pigeonhole him into one thing but he can there are players we have that can hang with with anybody you know in, 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 in whatever style they kind of choose to, to play but uh, again I make no apologies for just loving the blues you know
1: <laughs> I love that that um, should be that should be a t-shirt for you that could be a great berkeley guitar department that's a great
3: i make no apologies for loving the blues that's actually a
1: tune
0: Um, there we go by the way you could be heard
3: it here first you can when mike comes out with the tune you'll know where it was born um hey ian there's a question that you always ask
2: yeah i think it's actually pretty apropos to the people not realizing sort of the depth of what you do sort of just only noticing what's on the surface and that's this question that we ask everybody, um, which is what is a question that students should be asking that they might not think to ask that's not on their mind yet?
0: I, I, I thought I had an answer for that and I, I don't. <laughs> uh, let me check my notes, I'll get right back to you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. Uh, what question um, uh, that students should ask Sure, just I like something not, okay. that they
2: might not yeah, even be right. thinking about. Well, a lot, lot
0: of time, uh, okay, I have a thought about that. Um, sometimes, quite often, students don't ask um, about, uh, like like a practice routine for instance and when they do ask about a practice routine i just i am just thrilled because I, I i have this avenue i've got these things that i know are or i feel are important and um sometimes they don't ask about that because and i use the expression that um sometimes i've seen students and i've been this place myself before I feel like i had so much to do so many things that needed to be worked on that i didn't work on anything because you can just get overwhelmed with all these things we don't know on mm-hmm. these topics in this vast especially as a young maybe as you know younger person if they're coming in they don't have maybe as much experience um, um there's all these things we don't know and so it can be overwhelming and and um so i think um sometimes uh, they they would be well off to ask you know what do you recommend or what are some ideas for a practice routine and when people ask me that i'm just i'm thrilled to share with them i mean if i may go into that for a second um i remember in my early days of playing there were not great teachers i there was a classical teacher that showed up in our local music store in northern california i took that for a while the the the, the classical disappeared disappeared teacher and a flamenco Teacher appeared. And I took from that for a while, and I, I, I just absolutely loved that. I just, oh, the music still this day. And uh, um, anyway, there's, something I could follow up on that uh, in my life experience but I'll stay on topic for now and then a jazz teacher showed up at this local music store I think I was just wanting to play rock and roll you know but this teacher proceeded to show me I remember you you know the changes that start talking about grant green and this guy this was like a hipster bebopper guy I thought this guy's this guy's old he's probably 40 years old you know Uh, you know at the time uh, I think I was 16 or 17, taking, taking guitar lessons, paying, paying for them out of my own money, working jobs, local jobs and things like that. And, uh, and, uh, so the local, uh, music store, um, okay. Uh, where am I going here? Help me out. We got to edit this. <laughs> practice routines.
3: This is great. Yeah. Oh, all right.
0: All right okay, okay. So, okay. Practice routine. Wait. Out. This
3: is a good moment because sometimes you get distracted when you're working on something and this will help you bring it back.
0: There you go. All right. Perfect. All right. So, uh, 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 practice routine. Um, all right. Um, don't start rolling yet. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Let me bring myself back into where, where I was going with this. All right, all right, all uh, right, uh, all right, okay. Um, okay, so. I really threw, rattled my head there. I you say, sorry. Uh, okay, well, so when I do get the opportunity to present this practice routine idea to um to students um i go back to w- what i was learning from in my early days and one of those things was from reading guitar player magazines every week mm-hmm. and I, every month as they came out and i was just looking for those articles uh, that would be by like larry carlton or tommy tedesco and there was some really great uh, lessons presented in the and, and again if you didn't have a teacher at the time I was learning from listening to records and I was learning from, to, from just taking those little uh, one page little things apart every week and somebody talked about it might have been Jeff Berlin on bass or something I don't remember who it was but it talked about the importance of writing out a practice routine a li- just a list of things to do and um, You know, that made a lot of sense to me at the time. And so I don't think I started doing that right away. But by the time I was like, you know, studying with Charlie Benakis for a while, for a couple of years. And we've got some faculty on the school here that, you know, studied with him for more than 10 years, you know. But just in the couple, two and a half years or so that I studied with him, um, I had to have a a list of things to do, or there's just no way I could get through it all. And I was also a Berkeley student at the same time. So there was just a tremendous amount of things to practice. So I just would list out all the things, and I would just try to hit on all of those topics uh every day and it wasn't just in one key it was 12 keys with charlie and and, and, and everything so you had to learn the fretboard and things like this. there's the things that really and i try to adopt some of that stuff not in his way at all but just to make sure that the students that i'm teaching are learning the fretboard uh and i'd love to come back to that and talk about that in a little bit but but uh, um um so this element of rhythm what i suggest uh, my students do as far as practicing go i try to put the repertoire at the center of a hub it's like a wheel and i I don't know i probably saw that by somebody i don't probably seen it by more than one person i don't really remember if i if i did i would give that person credit or whatever but if repertoire is the center that's the goal We're, we're we as musicians we want to play we want to share our music we may be solo performers or we may want to play with people so we have to enhance our skills at, at if we are going to play in an ensemble we're playing with people and i consider repertoire everything i practice ties into this repertoire thing and i try to get that across to my students so i basically say okay now maybe we're maybe we're reading a melody out, out of a real book that's one way to access uh, music one way and if we're doing that we're learning songs that we want to play and i all, often ask them I want you to put together a song list for yourself. Tell me, show, show me your repertoire. Show me maybe maybe you're working on jazz. Maybe you came in with some Brazilian things. Maybe you have a lot of rock. Maybe you love blues. Let's see your repertoire. What do you have under your fingers right now in your repertoire? Uh, and, and make a note if you need to, if you don't know the head. If you don't know the head, you need to put a little asterisk on it because too many times I've been caught down the road like, oh, I know that tune. Well, you play the melody. Oh, I don't know the melody. I know the tune, but I know the No, you don't really know the tune unless you know the melody. Because if we're going to be an informed soloist, the melody is the original take. That's the theme. Everything we do after that is a variation on a theme. So so learn the head. And then also, oh, I, I kind of know, but I don't have to change this memory. I kind of need the chart for this. Okay, then you don't really have the tune memorized and you can't. Think ahead because thinking ahead is part of playing, and it's not where, where, what I'm on right now. It's where am I going, and and with, with the thing, and uh, so reading. This is going to enhance our reading skills to to work on this tune out of a real book, and that's so that's. That's one way uh, we can uh, work on our repertoire is to learn those songs that you want to learn that may, may, maybe there's 10 or 12 or, or 30 in a, in a real book that you want to work. So that'll be part of what we do. Now, uh, we need to work on rhythm guitar techniques on playing on that song that we just did that we're adding. We've learned the melody. We've enhanced our reading skills. And now let's work on all these ways of... Um, uh, playing rhythm guitar uh, on that in these different contexts. Um, let's look for transcriptions of every one of the songs we're working on. Uh, songs recordings that inspire you. That's how I learned every one of my songs. I would, I had a lot of records and I would just find these songs. I got to learn that. So now it's so easy to access on the internet. So they go and they start finding different recordings. Oh, here it's an E flat. Here it's an A flat. Here there it's an F. And they take whatever they want but, we, but we've got to be listening and it's and transcribing from that from that song that you're working in your repertoire you just did your ear training thing a giant favor by learning the changes that are on that record and not assuming that they the real book changes are, are correct because they're not going to be and not not for that particular recording and uh, and so you know you work at transcribing And and uh, and uh, again, that's ear training right there. Now, once you've got that written out, you actually analyze what the solos has done. So your analysis of just has just progressed. And now you've got these techniques that you're looking at. Let's put them to work with uh with, with with improvising over it in our own way let's reuse those things that that person did on that recording and those series of recordings and uh, and then uh you know in addition to that all the scales and everything you're practicing the scales arpeggios you're doing as warm-ups that's all coming into play when you play over your repertoire too so repertoire in cases everything we work on and i mean most everything and that's how i view it anyway and i try to pass that along to my students so back to the practice routine try to look at these different elements and put them on a list and 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 write out five or six or seven things on playing well, i ask them also what you know what's in your life right now what do you need to practice oh i need to work on i got an ear training teacher that's nailing me to the wall okay put that's on the list right <laughs> and i also remind them that ear training is not separate than, than the musician we play because so many times i've had musicians especially maybe that some of the Um, younger ones that are coming in for a semester they're just ah I I hate my ear training class it's just you know I don't want to be doing that I just have to explain to that person these things are not separate what you hear in your ear is is it it comes out in your music they are one so you if you're having trouble with that ear training we need to work on that you know you need to work on that and we need to I'll help you with it even you know if I can which I can so anyway all those elements come together so I'll write out a, a list of five or six or seven things according to what's on their their list they've got an ensemble they got to work on these songs and so that's that's their repertoire we can some of the repertoire we can work on and that ties the lesson in with the with the ensemble because that's one of the things we should be doing as teachers is helping with the, the them playing in the ensemble um but the other thing about the practice routine is I found a long time ago I read this somebody else passed this a it's not so much sometimes exactly what you do but the fact that you're doing something because there's often more than one there's more than right one right answer as to as to how you can achieve what you want to do the thing that's the wrong answer is not doing anything with focus because Mm -hmm. uh, because you got overwhelmed so write these things down and if you're severely limited with your practice time if it's two hours a day one hour a day You just give them the best you can, but you come back at it five, at least five, ideally six days a week or ideally seven days a week. But don't try to do it in one practice session in one hour, two hour, one two hour chunk on Saturday. That's not going to get it. you got to do it every day for little bits of time. And that way the mind can work on it. Subconscious works in your sleep. Or keeps you awake like it does me but uh, but, uh, it works in our sleep and uh, i learned that a long time ago the mind if you practice that way and that's 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 common knowledge we all kind of know that short bits but to do it on a regular basis and so just getting them to write these things out and it helps i think it helps bring things into focus and it makes things less overwhelming because yeah, and somebody said you don't try to do it all in one day and uh, one of you said that earlier and that's so true mick what mick told larry uh, i saw in a, a while back on a um, on one of these things was um you do it a little bit every day and you you just, and then you feel good about it. You feel good. Yeah. In fact, I made a progress today and don't be depressed about it. Go out and take a walk, get some air, take take short practice sessions and get up and walk around after an hour, take a walk. I'm thankful I've got the dogs to walk, you know? So anyway. a little <laughs> bit know, about practice routine.
1: Yeah, but I, I, lo- I love what you're saying about the daily thing, because some people think, well, if I don't have, you know, six hours a day to do it, then I'm going to not do it. And, you know, if you'll have a student that comes in and you get into some reading and they're, they're stumbling and they say, well, I, I practiced it this week. Um, turns out on Saturday they did, you know, an hour. Um, and, and so how can you, how are you going to learn that way? If you, if you took that 60 minutes and you did 10 minutes, like six days a week, 10 minutes, six days a week, yeah. same amount of time in the week, but it's, it's, More uh, effective time in the week to have the daily retention, right? How you're, you because you did that hour on Saturday and now it's Wednesday, Mm -hmm. you're spending the whole time trying to remember what you did, all those days ago, as opposed to take if it if it's 60 minutes you have to dedicate to that, just do 10 minutes for six days, then you'll wow okay wow okay I'm, this is working for me you know
3: and, you know and the reality too though is that you know i love that image but you know the reality is at a certain time in your life 10 minutes a day isn't gonna cut it even if you do it you really do maybe you need six hours a day every day because that's just how your mind works you have to give yourself that that chance um and one of the other things i loved about what you said mike is um like the way you described it is exactly what happens. You know, like your life experience you had, I was a kid and I had some flamenco lessons and classical lessons and I had these things and guitar player and then these records. And you can see how already that would be overwhelming. And then as you were excited talking about it, you're like, wait a minute, what will bring me back on track? And what brings you back on track is exactly what brought you back on track in our conversation is your practice list. Yeah. because you see like once you get really deep and you go below the surface there are so many things and it's easy to get overwhelmed and and part of it is that we all have to keep coming back to the list whatever it is for that week that we can get done yeah
0: yeah i mean uh I remember you know cheryl i know we we both come from the guitar department here as well at some point but do you remember charlie chapman and, and i and i was taking classes from i took that ensemble that bach ensemble and all that. i love that it was fun uh, it was but charlie was a very good reader and uh, it was charlie that reminded me many times when i came to it changed my reading practice a bit because i would sit down for an hour or two and just try to read and, and then before i came to berkeley and i mean you know. It would be fatiguing but he, he advised everybody he loved to tell people keep the practice sessions short 10 minutes at, at first mm-hmm. but do it more than once a day if you can do you're much better off if you do two or three 10 minute sessions and you try then try to sit down for half an hour or 40 minutes mm-hmm. he said mm-hmm. uh this is a quote he said you know readings like lifting weights mentally you need to be a hundred percent in the moment and focus on reading you can't be thinking about uh, uh, the bacon cheeseburger that you're going to go get, you know, walk down the street for lunch, or you can't think about what show you're going to that night, or you can't let your mind start drifting. When you do, when your mind starts going like that, just start practicing scales or arpeggios or something, motor scales. Cause you can, you can develop some of those skills when your mind isn't, Fully there if you're gonna if you have to make a decision about that there's things you can do for muscle memory. And there's things you need to do 100% when you're when you're when you're doing it and reading is one of those and so keep it short if you don't have much of an attention span. Just keep it short and come back at it and I try to remind my students to do that, and then that also gives them a, a chance to work on the reading thing a little bit because if they think I have to have an hour to do this to get better at it, they're probably not gonna find that hour. But if it's more like 10 minutes a couple times a day, they might actually have a chance to get in there. And then after three months, they're gonna see some growth. They're gonna see some growth, you know.
1: Well, you know, I had a friend who was, who was a writer and, and she was going through writer's block. And so, you know, she went to a workshop. And one of the things was just start with 10 minutes a day and write for 10 minutes a day. It was, and what that was about was developing the habit. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like she was avoiding it for whatever reason. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, she said maybe some night she'd come home and go to bed and forget, um, you know, (laughs) to do, so she'd jump out of bed just 10 minutes and get it done. But it was to establish the habit. And once she could do that, then she could do 15, then Mm -hmm. she could do 20. And then she wrote her novel (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. at the end. You know, it's kind of like, I guess you could say it's like turning the tap on in a way. I mean, that somebody explained it to me that way a while back is like the the idea of writing, trying to write music and little melodies and things like that. And I've gone through periods where I've written music and there's periods of dry spells where I just got away from it as well. The, the tap turned off, you know. And even for me, writing some of the music for these little, you know, final uh, reading things and everything like that, every semester, if I haven't been writing very much during a semester, I, the tap kind of comes back on and these little melodies start coming popping. When you do that every day for a while, it just it kind of primes the well and you just, the, the ideas start coming that way, you know. So I totally am agreeing about that, you know.
3: I really love this discussion because there's so much here for everyone to keep going back to. I feel like Mike, this is going to be one where people go back and listen over and over again to get some good ideas and some good tips. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we should, um, plan to have you back and do just a practice, get to know your guitar, um, round and, um, but I wanted to share a quick a couple little stories before we sign off that I remembered about Harry Belafonte that I think you'll like. So he came um, to Berkeley to get an honorary doctorate and I had a chance to spend some time in person uh, watching him and and then it was the scene where he spoke and then he um, listened to the concert and he happened to sit right near where where I was sitting so Um, I got to listen to him and I remembered what he said. And and he told two stories that reminded me of things you said, Mike. One was um, he said that every great player in his band left his band to come to Berkeley to learn, (laughs) just as you did. And he said, so I've come here, I've come to you to meet the thieves. (laughs) (laughs) and i'm sure that there are many band leaders that felt the way that way about you and berkeley stole you from them and never let you go he said they never come back you know they learn what they learn and they never come back so thank you stole from me is what he said and then the second thing um, was something that ian said you know everything you're talking about is there's so much depth below the surface of the blues and learning the guitar that you've brought up and uh, he told the story When he was a kid, um, he had Lester Young had asked him to come to Paris. And so at the time you could only get there as, I mean, the best way to get there was on a boat. So he was on the Atlantic ocean and Lester Young and Charlie Parker happened to be there and they had gone up to smoke on the deck. And he thought, I'm going to hide out and listen to them. I want to hear what they're talking about. You know? So he was hiding and he said, he was listening to them and they were smoking and all you could see was just water as far as the eye could see, and the moon was out. And and Charlie Parker said, Lester, man, that's a lot of water. And then he said there was like three minutes of silence. And Lester Young said, yeah, and that's just the top. (laughs) <laughs> which I thought was so great. I think yeah. about that all the time when wow. I when I hear people talk about depth. So,
0: oh, man, that's deep.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Mike,
0: that's, oh, man, that's great. That no, it. It really is. That is deep. That <laughs> is <really> deep. <laughs> it is
3: deep. Um, so, Mike, thank you for bringing so much depth and thoughtfulness to our coffee this morning. Oh. Um, oh. Cheryl, any? Thank you, you wanna
1: hit up before we split? No, I. this was fantastic. Thanks for sharing all your wisdom, really. it's not. It's gone beyond knowledge to wisdom. Oh, so, no. I, 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 it's really inspirational.
0: I am so thankful for the invitation to come here and I'm sorry that I, I talked so much. I would've <laughs> <I shouldn't> have...
1: <laughs> What?
3: That's what your, that was the gig, man. That was the gig. <laughs>
0: okay. thank you. Well, here we go.
3: All right. Ian, thank you for being here, too. Thank you, Ian. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. Everybody. And thank you, Mike. And Everybody. everyone, we'll see you next time on okay. Coffee
0: Talk. Hope so. Thank you. Bye-bye.
3: Bye, everyone.